You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning, church, and welcome to Mill Creek. Uh, I'm Jonathan Drendel. I am the pastoral intern here. Uh, one thing I love about Mill Creek is our commitment to disciples making disciples for the glory of God. Uh, As such, we think it's our responsibility to train up leaders and preachers in the church. And so it's my pleasure this morning to introduce to you Matt Gonzalez, who is preaching his first sermon here this morning. And I personally had the pleasure of working with him through this process, and I know how much hard work he's put into this message. And I got to hear it first hour. It went great. So you guys are in for a real treat. So our passage this morning is from Genesis chapter 15. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can find that in the seat back in front of you at page 7. This is the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heavens and number the stars if you are able. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these cut them in half, and laid each half over against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in this land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will suffer affliction for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possession. As for you, go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the inequities of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. And behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jubasites. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the preaching of your word. God, we ask that you would bless Matt as he gets ready to deliver the word of the Lord. God, let your gospel be clear. Give him clarity in speech and help us to respond faithfully to the preaching and teaching of your word. Amen.
Well, amen, amen. Thank you, Jonathan. And good morning. Good to see you guys. And good to be with you. Welcome to Mill Creek Community Church. If you're new, welcome. Uh, if you are new to me, or if you haven't seen my face, or maybe you saw a much more bearded man running around here uh, a couple of months ago, who now looks about half a decade younger. Um, my name is Matt Gonzalez, like Jonathan said. Uh, before we get going, for those of you who may not really know me, may not know much about me, I'd like to say some words by way of introduction, just so you can know a little bit about who is uh, preaching to you this morning. So I grew up in uh, Arkansas, Woopig, for anyone who, who wants to throw some Hey, there we go, Woopig. Uh, grew up in a town called Bryant, Arkansas, which is just south of the capital city of Little Rock. I grew up in a home with two parents who taught us to love Jesus, who modeled faithful marriage and loving Jesus. Grew up with two older brothers, two dogs, and uh, unfortunately for anyone who's seen me dance, uh, two left feet as well. Uh, That is never a good thing, I promise you. Uh, I was saved in early high school in Orange Beach, California. Not California. Golly, what state am I in? Orange Beach, Alabama. Excuse me. Orange Beach, Alabama. Other side of the country. Um... And that was really the beginning of the journey to figure out what it meant to follow Jesus and what that looked like. And, uh, you know, as a teenager, that is a terrifying, terrifying thing, but it's also an exciting one. And in the midst of that season as well, uh, I'm sure there's some high schoolers in here who can attest. The question began to be thrown at me as I was moving toward graduation. What are you going to do? Are you going to go to college? Where are you going to go to college? And all of those questions that begin to overwhelm you. Uh, got thrown at me. So the Lord very faithfully allowed me to go to Arkansas Tech University uh, in pursuit of a degree in emergency management and administration, which sounds way fancier than it is. Uh, but that is also where I met my beautiful wife, Lindsay. You guys will see her around here in a bit. Uh, and in that season, the only thing that is worse than asking a high school student what they're going to do after graduation is asking a college student that same question. Uh, and so I was terrified and the Lord was once again very faithful in my life and drew me back to Little Rock in pursuit of an opportunity to work full time in student ministry. And so, uh, of course, accepted and excitedly moved to Little Rock with my new wife and we began the adventure of uh, student ministry and, and what that looked like. And we had an apartment, Lindsay got a job. And so we had two jobs, a cat, we had friends and family close and uh, it was a great time uh, for about two and a half years. And then... Uh, the Lord just began to shake things up as he has a habit of doing. And he began to gently and firmly draw me and very quickly after Lindsay as well, that we were supposed to quit our jobs uh, and move to a city that we didn't know away from everything that we knew and that was comfortable uh, so that we could go and I, I could pursue seminary education in a pursuit of a ministry call that he had given me. Uh, And friends, if I can be fully transparent with you about a year and a half ago, as we were sorting through these things, we said, no, just flat out. No, that's not happening. The doubt and the fear and all of the details of doing that was just too much. Uh, But he began to work in our hearts. And once again, this past August, he made that call again and we said yes. And so we moved up here in August and, uh, you know, quit our jobs and gave our cat to a friend, which is very sad and moved away from our friends and family. Uh, to come here. And once again, if I can be just transparent with you, this has easily been the scariest season of my life. At every single step, God has been so faithful, and at every single step, I have been so fearful. And it has just been this weird back and forth with Lindsay not having a job. All of a sudden, he provides a job. Us not knowing where we're going to live, we have housing. Uh, and then friends and family getting plugged into a, an incredible local body here. He's been faithful at every step, but 
I still find myself waking up in the middle of the night sometimes with this doubt gripping my stomach um, that he's going to provide, that we're going to be able to make it, and that uh, just life is going to work out according to how he's called us. And I know for a fact that I am not the only one in the room who deals with that. Right? I know for a fact that I'm not the only one who finds doubt gnawing at him, who still wakes up fearful, who even in the midst of God's faithfulness and his faithfulness to his promises and his goodness still struggles with trusting that he'll see his word done. We all do. To, to feel that is to be human. And for some of us, I know what you're struggling with and it's crushing. For others of you, I don't know. But I also know, I can see it in your eyes, it's crushing. Each of us walks with some sort of doubt. And that very theme is central to our passage today. Doubt even in the midst of clear promises from God himself. I hope that you'll be encouraged and challenged by the word of the Lord this morning as we walk through this together. As we've just read, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15. If you would like to turn there with me, if you have your Bible, I hope you do. If you need to borrow one, I think it's on page 7, if memory serves, uh, of the Seatback Bible in front of you. Now, as you're doing that, just want to give a, a couple words by way of overview of this. So you'll notice, if we look at the passage, it's going to consist of several movements. There's going to be a back and forth that's going to happen in the first part. The Lord is going to speak. Abram is going to respond. In the second half of the text, that's not going to be the case. Right? The Lord is going to be doing all the speaking and all the acting. We're going to look at why that matters, and we'll circle back, and I'll, I'll give you reminders when that's happening. But then at the end, we're going to come back and look at what does that actually mean for us today. Because the Old Testament can seem so distant sometimes. And we're going to bring that right back into uh, our lives here today. So without further ado, let's take a look at the first one of these movements together. And our first big idea, big idea number one, the promises. We see this in verses 1 through 11. Verses 1 through 11. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, anytime we see after these things, it's important to look at the context that's happened right before. And the context here is incredibly crucial. If we look back to the first half of Genesis chapter 14, we'll see that though horribly outnumbered and outgunned, the Lord orchestrated a Death Star trench run level victory for my Star Wars fans, uh, with Abram pulling off a victory with 318 men against these huge armies in the land. He should not have happened. He should have died in the process. But the Lord not only preserved his life, he gave him victory as well. And if we look at the second half of Genesis 14, and really the entire life of Abram, we'll see promise and provision from the Lord at every single step of the journey. That is the anthem of Abram's life, is the goodness of the Lord. So Abram is intimately aware of the Lord's might and protection, and he has clear understanding of his promise and provision. That begs the question for us then, why does the Lord open with fear not? Right? That should strike us when we read this text. Because in the midst of such triumphant feeling passages with victories and successes and provision, that comes off as somewhat strange. But it serves to us as a pulling back of the curtain of Abram's heart. And we see what's going on in there in the very next verse, verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. This is the reason for fear. 
The Lord has not given him any offspring. He remains childless. Now, we understand this to an extent in our modern day. We do. Childlessness is sadly all too common. And for some of us, that may be the particular doubt that we're struggling with. But for Abram, it goes beyond the depth of human heartache to pure practicality as well. Because if he does not have descendants, then the promises of the Lord do not come to pass. Not only does Abram have no son, which is what would be needed here, which seems to be a massive hole in God's plan, a lot of scholars actually believe that he brought Lot along in order as like a backup plan. His brother's son who could carry on the family in line just in case God didn't pull through, right? But we saw God cause them to separate, and that plan was dashed in chapter 13. So even in the midst of victory, Abram's childless and has no clear path forward. Now, it would be easy to see Abram's doubt here as a rejection of God and his promises. But that understanding ignores the context that we've just talked about. I think a clearer picture in a New Testament tie-in here for us is found in the reflection of Mark chapter 9. Where the father of a demon-possessed boy sees Jesus, understands who he is and what he can do, but doubts that the Lord will actually do a work and cries out, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Abram, like us, has seen the hand of the Lord. He's tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but falls short in his trust that God will see him through. Doubt remains. And in answer to Abram's question, the Lord speaks yet again. See in verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. The Lord's response to Abram is a dialing in of his promise in chapter 12. There he told Abram that he would make him into a great nation. Here we see that that great nation will come from his own flesh and blood. That's simply Incredible, And is this as if it needed to become even more incredible? It does. We have to remember that Abram's about 75 years old at this time. Sarai, his wife, is likely just a decade younger. And we know from the text that she's also barren. She can't have kids. So to this couple that is past the age of having kids and unfortunately can't in the first place, the Lord says you're going to have offspring. And this is where this great nation will come from a bold claim, right? It's a bold claim from the Lord. And his next move, God's next move, almost seems to anticipate the very human doubt that jumps up in this moment. God brings Abram outside and has him look up toward heaven to number the stars. He shows Abram this canopy of his majesty and splendor that he spoke into existence. And in this moment, in the midst of his glorious creation, he takes his eyes off of what he has done and has promised to do onto who he is. God Almighty, the Lord of all creation, master and maker and sustainer of heaven and of earth. That is he who makes this promise And what is 
Abram's response. He does something incredible and, and gets up and... No, 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 no. no. See here in the text with me in verse 6. He believed the Lord. He believes. And the Lord counts it to him as righteousness. Notice that all arrows still point directly at the Lord. And Abram's righteousness is not a work of his own hand, but only by faith alone in the only one who is worthy. He didn't do enough or say the right thing, nor was his saving faith placed in a plan, a how, if you will. This text actually spins that concept on its head. Abram's faith was not placed in a how, but in a divine who. And for us, that's the application here. In the midst of doubt, trust the one who will see it done. Trust the who, the one who will see it done. And so now we see, moving into verse 7, we see the second of God's promises in the text. The Lord speaks once again to Abram, initiating another speech response flow. And here the Lord shifts his promise from a people to a land. There's a dialing in that's going to take place once again. It's not a land that the Lord has promised him and will give his descendants. It is this land. He's just fought a military campaign in it. He is sitting in it when this is happening. (laughs) It's dumbfounding. And then we see these two key ideas that we will circle back to. God has promised a people and a land, which together form what you need for a nation. God has shown him precisely how he is going to make that great nation out of him. It's exciting news, but again, in his humanness, we see a question pop up from Abram. Look with me in verse 8. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? It's so human. Abram's response is something of a reflection of before, but there are some interesting elements to note. Notice with me the usage of pronouns. Abram asks, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Doubt rears its ugly head again. Remember with me, Abram's an older man. His years of war fighting and conquest are quickly diminishing. Time seems to be running out. And this whole promise thing would be nice to have squared away sooner rather than later. In his humanness, Abram here doubts that the Lord will be faithful. And so that we, in our hindsight, don't try to elevate ourselves above Abram. And so that as we continue to look forward, we can see what's happening here. Challenge and a question for application. Do we believe that the Lord is faithful? Or more specifically, do you believe that the Lord is faithful? And if your answer to that is yes, if I were to read your life or if someone, not me, was to read your life, would they be able to say yes, they walked out a belief that the Lord was faithful? In the midst of Abram's doubt, we see something fascinating. Built within Abram's question, how will I be sure that I will possess it, is actually a trust that the Lord will give him offspring to inherit the land. 
Notice with me that he asks how he'll know that the land will be his and by extension, his descendants. He's looking toward legacy. You see, the X factor in all of this is not God. The X factor, if you will, is Abram. It's almost as if Abram is saying, God, you are holy and powerful and faithful. I am none of those things. How can I be assured that as the faithful partner, you won't leave me, you won't leave your promises unfulfilled because of my unfaithfulness? He is the X factor. And the question here is about assurance of promise. How can I be assured that this will come to pass? And then for our modern eyes, it gets weird, right? We can admit that. It gets weird. We miss the significance of it with our modern eyes, though. He asks the Lord how he can be assured that he will possess the land. The Lord then commands him to bring him several animals. And in 2022, and when I'm studying this, I'm like, what? What is going on right now? Because this is so foreign to us. But we have to remember, this is happening 4,000 years ago. In Abram's day, writing wasn't really a thing yet. Right? There weren't contracts. Instead, what they had was a binding agreement called a covenant. In short, two parties wanting to make an agreement would brutally slaughter animals and split their carcasses in half. For those of you who deer hunt, turn the cleaning process up to an 11 with multiple animals. And in the sight of witnesses, the two parties would walk together through the midst of the corpses and swear their oath. It was revoltingly bold and a gruesome endeavor, and that was the very significance of it. The declaration being made by these two people was, if I do not uphold my end of the agreement, may I be torn in half like these animals. You see, the creation and breaking of a covenant demanded death. Demanded it. It was culturally understood. Then there is no greater assurance or agreement that the Lord could offer that could be offered between two people than this, a covenant. And in the midst of all the questions that have come from him, we see Abram still being obedient. He obeys the one in whom he has faith. He gathers up the precise animals that the Lord commands, slaughters them, cuts them in half, and waits for the Lord to appear and do his half of the bargain. He even scares off some birds that think this holy moment's a buffet. See, set up wise, it's a textbook covenant. It's textbook from what we understand. However, let us not forget that this covenant is with the God of the universe. By its very nature, it will be different. There's an interesting tension hanging in the air here as we move into our second movement in the text and our second big idea. See with me the assurance of promise verses 12 to 21. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you 
shall go to your fathers in peace. And you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In the strangest business meeting of all time, Abram's asleep. This is not, this is not acceptable even in our day, right? Like, Abram, you have one job, buddy. Stay awake, participate. Even take notes if you're not going to participate. But he's asleep. And interestingly, we're also told that darkness falls on him. In the midst of this dreadful and great darkness, the Lord speaks. He lays out what would likely have been quite uncomfortable news for Abram's ears. What lies in store for your offspring? Wondering and slavery. They will dwell in a land that is not their own and they will be afflicted servants, slaves. For 400 years, this will be the case. But then, the Lord asserts his power and goodness even in the midst of that dark time. Judgment will fall upon the nation that they serve and they will leave with great possessions. But, (laughs) Abram's told he won't experience this bondage. Or, for that matter, the taking of the land. He will not live to see the fulfillment of the promises of the Lord. Instead, he'll live to a good old age, die, and go to his fathers in peace. That news had to be both encouraging and greatly disappointing to Abram. I'm not sure about you, but if I'm Abram, that's never the path that I would have picked. Never the option that I would have chosen And as if it wasn't tough enough, the breeding ground for doubt that has existed through all of these promises has just been amplified by a huge degree, by delay and hardship. It's a path full of hardship and frustration that Abram doesn't even get to see the payoff for. We see in the greatest move, God has raised the stakes yet again. In the, in the midst of this difficult message, we see reinforced a critical idea from our text. This covenant may be made with Abram, but it is never just for Abram. It may be made with him, but it is never just for him. There's something bigger happening here. Than just a promise to a man from Ur of the Chaldeans. And as our text continues, notice with me that the established pattern is broken. Abram's silent. He doesn't respond. Because he's still asleep. Instead, the Lord speaks and acts in answer to himself. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold... A smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. As the sun sets and the darkness carries on, in steps light. This is the very presence of the Lord appearing in this smoking pot and flaming torch. His holy, righteous presence. 
He passes between the corpses of the animals, marking his membership in this covenant. It's beyond amazing. But notice with me what's missing here, what's not taking place. Abram does not arise from his sleep and walk through with the Lord. He's watching what's taking place. Notice with me, there are also no human witnesses aside from Abram. The Lord himself is making, binding, and witnessing this covenant. And the implications of that are earth-shattering. Because this covenant is not a work of Abram's hand, the fulfillment of the promises bound in it are not contingent on Abram. Rather, in this moment, the Lord is declaring, I am the Lord who is faithful and everlasting. As Hebrews 6.13 teaches us, having no one greater to swear by, the Lord swore by himself. He is declaring, as surely as I live, I will see it done. The assurance of this covenant is the life of the Lord himself who cannot die. And as our passage comes to an end, the Lord restates his promise to Abram, now bound, sealed, and assured by covenant. He lists the exact measurements and angles of the entire promised land that he will give in more specificity than he ever has. I'm going to spare you reading back through all the ites once again, but know that they're there. That is the restatement of the promise. It's incredible. It's strange then that the passage following this incredible moment is a great turning away from God's promise to Abram. He gives into his doubt and in the very next chapter, he and Sarai will try to force the hand of the Lord. They will try to make him play according to their rules by trying to have a child through Sarai's handmaiden. Abram's next recorded action in scripture is to sin against the Lord and forsake his covenant promise. Friends, there was no greater assurance in the face of doubt that God could give. There was no greater agreement. Nothing he could do more than the work of his own hand bound to his own life. And Abram's unfaithfulness would not only carry to the rest of his life, but to his son and his son's son and the sons after that. And even in that, what we've just seen, God would continue to be faithful. For he would bring about his promises. And with that assurance of God's promise in our hand and in our heart, let's move forward from our text here. Because this is one of those interesting intersections in scripture where not only is it written about the people it's written to, but the specific promise in here is the people who this is written to. The original audience were Abram's descendants who had just been delivered from the very slavery that God foretold that they would enter. The Hebrews that this text was originally written to had just spent four centuries with only bondage and the hope of God's promises to pass on to their offspring. They never saw it. Their fathers never saw it. And it was only this generation that we saw leave in the Exodus that would see some of the fulfillment. They knew what it was to know the Lord and what he can do, but to live in doubt 
that he will see it done. And when God used Moses to give them this text, this powerful reminder of his covenant promise must have hit hard. To this Exodus generation, the slavery and deliverance foretold was not some distant history. They had personally experienced the whip of the Egyptians, like their fathers had done for generations before them. They had seen God's wrath poured out on that very same people and had plundered them as they left their land. Friends, they didn't just hear this promise. They had just lived its fulfillment. And their eyes also saw something and would see something in this text that we can so easily miss. In our text, it is seen as a smoking pot and a flaming torch, but in their day seen as a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. The very presence of the Lord himself in their midst. To the Exodus generation, this familiar assurance of promise with a God whose presence they knew so well should have supercharged their faith. Tag teaming off of what they'd witnessed in Egypt. However, they would, in the footsteps of their father Abram, quickly abandon their trust in the Lord and his promises. They turned aside to idols in fear. Spitting on God's covenant promise. And that trend would continue as they entered the land, or their children entered the land, through kingdoms and exile and return. That would be the entire story of the Old Testament. That human failure and doubt is present, but it points us to one of the key themes of our text, and indeed, friends, all of Scripture. Where God's people are unfaithful, the Lord is faithful. Where his people are not, he is. Now's where it gets uncomfortable. Because you and I have to reconcile with this. We can't just leave this in the first book of our Bibles and just close the cover and not look at it. We've got to respond somehow. Let me begin, friends, by just shouting from the rooftops that the worst application you can make here is to make Abram the hero of the story. (laughs) In this story that really is about the life of Abram, what we're reading through, we so often want to find something to justify God's sovereign choice to work through him. We want to believe that there's something in him that makes him worthy of being called righteous before the Lord. And that's dangerous because in truth, what we're looking for is some inward reason for our own righteousness. Friends, it is only because of the Lord's goodness and his great grace that any of us are saved. And faith alone is the means. In making Abram the hero, we miss out on the point of the whole passage. Abram may be the agent of humanity whom the Lord is choosing to bless and make promise with. But make no mistake, this whole passage is about the Lord, who he is and what he does, his great faithfulness and the assurance that he gives his people through his covenant. He is the one on display here. But okay, Matt, I hear you saying it's a cool story. And I I feel, I feel you every time I, I study this text and before I had walked through this, It's easy to see this as some cool story with an old dead guy 4,000 years ago, right? It's so distant from us. 
And it's weird. Like there's these weird covenant things. Like what's going on? I don't understand half of this and it freaks me out. The other half I do understand. But why does it matter to us today? I hear you. I do. Friends, our text today is full of themes of promise, doubt, and assurance of promise. Though it may pertain to different things, we each live with doubt in God's promises. Yet, friends, we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but we still find ourselves falling short in our trust that God will see us through. It's a feeling so common to being human and in a much more uncomfortable way that we don't like to admit. It's so true of following Jesus. It can begin to weigh on us in ways that we don't see or don't want to see. Because of that, in the craziness of our lives in 2022, the thought of an ancient covenant made by a God who cannot die seems cold and distant from us. But good news Here's where the hope steps in. Because for those of us today, we have the rest of the story. We learn through the Gospels that the Lord did die. After having taken on human flesh. He came and died. In fulfillment of his now sealed promise that through Abram's line, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He died the death that you and I deserve for our sin. And in so doing, he fulfilled this old covenant that we see in our text. You see, Christ paid the death penalty that was bound up in God's covenant with Abram. But he did not pay God's part of it. Because the Lord is holy and righteous and faithful. He never broke his part of the agreement. Christ died in fulfillment of the penalty of sin and death that Abram and his descendants earned through their unfaithfulness. That in truth, each and every one of us in this room, on this whole earth, have accrued for the debt that we have sinned. Through Christ's sacrifice and Resurrection from the dead. This old covenant is fulfilled, but not only fulfilled, it is also expanded. As Romans 9, 8 tells us, now all of those who have faith in Jesus are counted as offspring. We are children of the promise. We who have faith in Jesus are among that blessed multitude as numerous as the stars. We've been grafted in. And that is our application here. In the face of doubt, trust in Christ. Our living assurance of promise. Trust in Christ. And that will mean very different things for those who know him and those who don't yet know him. Not only has he expanded the people, but through Christ, he's also expanded the land that he will give his people. To the whole earth with the promise of a new heavens and a new earth in the new creation. That is our promised land, friends, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we see once again that theme of a people and a land coming together as a nation. Indeed, through Christ, who is the living assurance of this new covenant. As 1 Peter 2.9 tells us, we are now a chosen people, a royal priesthood. 
a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, to proclaim the virtues of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Just as with Abram, this is no work of our own hands, but the gift of God by his amazing grace through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this is why we do not live in doubt and fear, because of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. But then our humanness begins to bite back at us. And the question pops up, why then? Why do I struggle so deeply with doubt? Friends, the question that so often rises up in our hearts when our trust that the Lord will follow through on his promises so often comes up as, what do I do? What do I do? What am I supposed to do? What can I do? And in that question is revealed the heart of our doubt. The question we're asking there is truly, how can I accomplish God's promises? It's a distinctly human-centric question. Bound within it is all of our hidden pride, our deep-seated self-reliance, and our painfully short memory. Friends, if humans could do something to fulfill God's promises and shake away our own doubt, there would be no need for Jesus. But we know that that is not the case. We must let go of our need to accomplish and rest instead in what Christ has already accomplished for us. That in the midst of our brokenness, the Lord has already sent one who paid the price for us, who in the face of our doubt rose triumphant from the grave as our living assurance of promise. So friends, when doubt assails, when fear seems to overwhelm us, when the promises of God once so encouraging and inspiring are made to seem cold and distant by the path set before us or the circumstances in which we find ourselves, our text today offers us the answer to the groanings of our heart. When our heart cries out, what do I do? The text boldly points us to our answer and our sermon in a sentence. Trust the Lord in the face of of doubt. Trust the Lord. That is no blind faith. Friends, that is no blind faith. It is a trust built upon Jesus Christ who currently resides in heaven, advocating for us before the Father on behalf of his completed work on the cross. What is the response of the Christian in the midst of doubt? It's surrender. Surrender to the one who holds our lives in his very hands. So when fear for finances and stability racks your world like it so often does mine, when the doctor tells you it's, it's bad, when children go wayward and doubt that years of investment have meant anything at all, trust in him. That is no quick fix. That's the most frustrating part of this. It is no quick fix. Bound within the promises of God is not always found a solution to our present circumstances. Rather, what is found 
It's a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul in the midst of life's circumstances. The thrill of hope in a broken world through Christ's completed work as we await that blessed day when pain, tears, doubt, and sin will be no more. When true justice will be carried out. When our faith shall become sight. And when this world will pass away and the Lord will make all things new. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you are faithful. We give you praise that you are faithful. And Father, we confess that we are not. Would you give us eyes to see your goodness, your grace? Would you teach us and show us? And would the word that you have given us soak into our hearts and lives? Father, would we trust in Christ who is our living assurance of promise? For the sake of his name and for your glory, we pray these things. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.